with you tonight. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Continuing our way through. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's one of the most asked questions in all humanity, isn't it? I think R.C. Sproul said it best, though, when he responded, that only happened once, and he volunteered. But theologically speaking, he's absolutely correct, right? I mean, I think we understand that. The Scripture affirms in Romans 3.10 that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. Some even consider that verse in Romans 3 to be a transliteration of Ecclesiastes 7.20, not just Psalm 14. The only truly good or innocent human being that has ever existed is Jesus Christ. The rest of us, of course, are of course are guilty by nature. But the sentiment of the question is not lost on us, right? I think we, we're not really claiming that a person has no need of Jesus when we say that. We're, we're just, sometimes it seems like things happen to people that are good people, that you wouldn't think bad things would happen to them. Here under the sun, it seems so often that the good die young. As the saying goes, that good people are decent people, even what we might call innocent people, given their age or their um, their cognitive abilities, die at what seems like well before their time. While people everyone would consider evil or wicked or debased seem to go on for what can feel like forever sometimes, with bad things never seeming to happen to them, they just continue to prosper or do well or have health. This This is one of the many paradoxes in creation that lend credence to the title of Dan Leoy's commentary on Ecclesiastes, The Divine Sabotage. There are so many things about life on earth that don't make sense, that seem unfair, and becoming a Christian doesn't change those things. In other words, it doesn't really help us make sense or any more sense of the more difficult things about life. Some puzzles or paradoxes confront all of us. It's, it's the human experience. Solomon teaches us something invaluable here as he continues to consider the difficulties of life under the sun, even for the churchgoer, so to speak. It, it may, his, his counsel tonight may come as a surprise to us, um, because it doesn't necessarily on the surface seem very Christian, but I think we'll find it's biblical. Those who fear God must not try so hard to be righteous that through their goodness they can prolong their lives and control their world, nor should we just give up and do whatever we want since things seem so pointless and unfair. The world is a paradox by design. This is a warning to his readers. We must not attempt to be overly righteous or surrender to the temptation to be overly wicked. Instead, we must trust God to fulfill his promises. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for those that have come tonight and I pray that in this place, in this hour, you would cut through the distractions and the things that might make it hard for us to listen or to focus. Father, help this text, help the meaning of this text have meaning to us tonight. So God, please help me preach to that end. Please help everyone hear and understand and believe these things I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake and our souls. Amen. So here in the middle of chapter 7, 
he starts, he, he, he begins almost a new section or a new thought. He, he starts by focusing on one of these puzzles that confront all of us. Verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So he talks about his vain life. Even though Solomon's life, what he means here, has been relatively brief, he's been around long enough to realize another paradox. Some good people die young, some wicked people grow old, and it just doesn't seem right. It's confusing. It's confusing. It begs the question, especially... If as Solomon we are any kind of student of Scripture or have any knowledge about God and the Bible, even in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 12, God clearly promised that if you honored your father and mother, you would live long in the land that God was giving to his people. In Deuteronomy 5.33, it's, it's generalized. God promised anyone that if they, in Israel, if they followed the path he was commanding, it would go well with you and you would live long in the land you were going to possess. The Proverbs are filled with statements about how wisdom and righteousness will prolong and preserve life. And generally speaking, that's true. But then we have, as we've talked about at the beginning, we have the exceptions. How, how, if that's true, how do you explain Job? How do we explain Cain getting murdered by Abel? Cain got married. Cain had kids. As far as we know, Cain lived a very, to a very ripe old age. Righteous Naboth, remember him, he refused to sell his inheritance to King Ahab, he was a faithful man, and he stoned to death for it in 1 Kings 21, 1-14. through 14. There's a faithful young deacon, a powerful evangelist, a great man of God named Stephen, who stoned to death for Christ in Acts 7. We all know examples of this. We all know examples of people who were too young to die too good of a person to have such horrible things happen to them. And so the fact that there are exceptions to the rule, let us know we need to see the rule differently than an absolute that is always the case. But that doesn't make the exceptions easier to understand, right? Or easier to accept, I should say. But again, we, we all know examples of this. There's, you know, we know of young a uh, young Christian man may be ready to go into ministry with the world ahead of him. He, he gets in a car accident in seminary and he's killed. How do we explain those things? A, a godly young woman cares for everyone, is a, is a good lady. She gets cancer. Her life is snuffed out before it even begins. And again, we know the technical theology, right? That, 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 that it's really not that people are innocent or good. It's, it's that there are people that aren't horrible. And so we wonder why would God allow such travesties to take place that this this is such a consistent theme or theme in the world that it was a cause for lament in Psalm 73 12 through 14 he writes such are the wicked always at ease they increase in riches all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long I have been plagued and am punished every morning He's lamenting that keeping God's law and living by his ways seemed pointless. Well, if obedience to God's law was in vain, why bother with it? Why not just give up? We face the same temptations today as God's new covenant people, don't we? This hasn't changed. The most faithful Christians are not immune to cancer. We're not immune to injuries or disasters or accidents or terrorism. The building collapse in... Um, Near Miami tonight, I think it's at Sunrise, Florida. 
150 some people still unaccounted for. The death toll is now officially at nine. There may have been some believers in there. How, how do you how do you explain that? Just what seems like, at least right now, this completely freak accident that that all these people. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of people that are still just unaccounted for. It's been days now. They're probably not going to be found alive. How do we explain such things? And Solomon has been observing this reality for almost eight chapters now, the difficult things about life. The question facing us now in this text, however, in light of all the paradoxes is, how should we respond? How should we think or live in light of this? And Solomon in this text will explore two ways. He'll give two options, two extremes. Um, The first would be the result of not reading these paradoxes correctly and thinking that bad things happen only because we've done something wrong and or because God is punishing us or not happy with us. So the response, apparently the, the extreme response in light of that is to try to be more righteous. Like that will buck the badness. Try to be more good. Try to figure out more and know more so that we don't do anything that causes the bad things to come or shorten our lives. Or we can go the other way, to the other extreme, and succumb to the temptation to forget God, become cynical, give up, and say, nothing matters. And either say, I'll just kill myself or I'll just do what we want here, increasing in wickedness. What's the use anyway, right? What difference does it make? It doesn't affect anything. It doesn't matter what I do. Two extremes in the midst of paradox. And believe it or not, we want to avoid them both, even the temptation to fix that by becoming more righteous. That's what Solomon is dealing with in this passage in verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Have you ever seen someone watch something horrible or bad happen, and they cross themselves or kiss a pendant or something, and almost as if a request or a wish for protection from the same thing happening to them? When we see bad things happening to good people, Should our response be to try harder to please God? Should we double our effort, double our commitment so that we preserve ourselves from harm? If we don't believe the gospel or the way the Bible describes the world, sure, you can. That would be one option, one response. It isn't going to change anything. But neither does this mean we should just give up on faith or give up on God. Solomon's counsel here is surprising. Right? Don't be too righteous. Don't act too wise. Why would you destroy yourself? That's, that's an amazing question to ask in light of that. Why would we think that being too righteous would be self-destruction? That's an amazing thought. But, he says, don't be too wicked either. Don't act too much like a fool. You don't want to die before your time. Right? So, one response we think will slow down inevitable death. The other one we think, or Solomon says, could speed it up. Don't be too righteous and wise, and don't be too wicked and foolish. That sounds like compromise. 
It doesn't sound like wisdom, but remember, it is wisdom. Don't be too righteous. How do we read that in light of Jesus saying in Matthew 5.48 to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Jesus in Matthew 5.6, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Go back to verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Since Israel lived under God's covenant promise, attached to land, physical land, that those who were righteous would live a long life in that land, they apparently had come to think that a person who died young, the reason they died young was that they weren't righteous enough. That was the only possible conclusion in light of how they read the law. But that ignores the other biblical reality that time and circumstance, so to speak, happen to all in the covenant or not in the covenant. Their response was apparently to try to become more righteous, pursue more righteousness, and by that, prolong your life. Like that's how you prolong your life in a cursed world. Just keep trying to be more righteous. Protect yourself from a world that's cursed and subjected to futility. But what is that thinking? Because that's where the Pharisees would have been. And we see how Jesus responded to them, how they responded to him. That pursuit denies the fact that salvation, standing with God, comes by grace through faith alone. Solomon responds to that thinking by saying, don't try to be super righteous here. That's not the goal. No matter how righteous you become, you never have enough to use it to barter with God or to buck the trend of a cursed and fallen world. Perfect righteousness is beyond us, beloved. When the gospel informs the text, we remember that the perfection Jesus requires back in Matthew does not come by effort or obedience. That perfection that God requires and will always require has to be imputed to us as an alien righteousness from Jesus or we will perish eternally. Jesus isn't challenging us in Matthew to try to become perfect. That was the problem. He's he's telling them you will never achieve the perfection you dot every I and cross every T to attain. You will never attain it. And you have to be perfect or you cannot abide with God. So how are you going to do that? He's telling us what's required so that we'll run to him for salvation and claim only his righteousness as our own. When we stand before him, we don't want to pull out a book of what we've done. Let God keep the records. We want to claim the blood and the righteousness of Christ as the reason for which we should have eternal life. God will accomplish our active obedience by the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. He's promised to do this, so we trust him. We trust that he will do that. That's one way to respond to the fear of death and the fear of suffering, right? I'll live the kind of life that doesn't merit any punishment. The problem is that not all suffering is punitive, Not all of it is a punishment or is a reaction of God to something that we did. The world is futile. It's passing away. It's cursed and it's broken. This is the whole source of Solomon's lament. We're all going to die here and we're all going to suffer here. Because of that fact, it's not all consequences of actions that are the reason for suffering. 
Sometimes it's the consequence of the fact that nothing here is whole. So if that's the case, why would more righteousness be the way to fix it? It doesn't undo the curse. That's not what righteousness does. Our righteousness. Solomon is saying, you're fooling yourself if you think you can become so good or so wise as to buck this trend. Again, I think part of what Scripture is often doing is... is, is is smiting morality, right? I, that, that this idea that by works righteousness we can be made whole, our world can be made whole, it won't undo the curse. We're, we're, we're fooling ourselves apparently, Solomon is saying. Don't be overly righteous. What's the point of that, right? Don't become so good or so wise or think that you can, that you can change anything. Beloved, don't think too much. It's part of what he's saying here. Don't think so much. In a world filled with paradoxes, don't place excessive confidence in either your wisdom or in your righteousness. Stop being a sin sheriff, right? Stop thinking you can know enough to understand everything. Stop thinking the goal of life is to find the rules to keep in every single solitary situation so that you never mess up. At what point are you walking by faith? You're dishonoring the essence of the gospel that says we need an alien righteousness, a foreign one, to us to be accepted by God when we try to use our own righteousness to do this. Just stop that, he's saying. And stop thinking you can gain enough wisdom to understand sin and really why people do what they do and what's going on and how we might stop it. Only God is infinitely wise. Only God truly knows the human heart. Only God. We don't even have a glimpse into a person's heart until they start talking. God knows it exhaustively whether their mouths are open or closed. Just stop all the anxiety. He's telling us here, there's, there's a great movie called The Last Samurai. came out probably 15 years ago now, Tom Cruise. And there's a scene where he's learning the ways of the samurai, training. He's a, he's a prisoner of war. And they're training him in the ways of the samurai, his captors, and he just keeps messing up. He keeps getting hit in the face with this stick. He can't figure out the forms. He can't figure out the movements. And the people are watching him in the village, and they're laughing, and his, his instructor's upset with him. And this young man comes up to him and says, too many mind. And, you know, and he's, he's, he said, you mind the people. You mind your feet. You mind the weapon. Too many mind. Right? He's thinking too much to do well. And it's, it's just a great kind of picture of what Solomon is going after here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do, do you know, this is, this is amazing advice, amazing counsel. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be too righteous. It's an amazing thing for the Bible to say. See, I thought that was the goal. No, the goal is Jesus, right? The goal is Jesus. The goal is who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished. We need to lighten up. Right? You, you don't hold on to righteousness by clinging to it. Right? Look, look, look at Paul. Look at Paul in Philippians. Look at what he's saying there. Think about the implications of what he's saying. Don't just think of it as a, as a Christian platitude. I count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ my Lord. I count everything I have accomplished as, as dung, right? As trash. That's the nicest way to say it. What, what is he doing there? He's, he's letting go of his claim on righteousness. He's letting go of his claim on figuring out his life and the direction of his life. That's why you hear him say those crazy things. That, like in Acts, when he's talking to the, 
elders in, in I think, Miletus, he says to him, I, I, I don't know, you know where I'm going. I just know that imprisonment and afflictions await me wherever I go. So, so there's, there's this freedom that apparently comes from not being uh, neurotic about our own lives. Right? We, we think that if we do that, we'll become lazy and won't produce righteousness. Right? The Bible does not talk that way. He said, well, this morning it seemed like, Tony, you were very uh, urgent about the need to see the glory of God and be transformed. And, I, and yes, I don't think that's being concerned with being overly righteous in myself. I think that's what I mean is, or what we're going after there is let go of clinging to the self and look to Christ. It's the only thing you're being instructed to do to behold the glory of God is look at Jesus. What are my hands going to be doing if I'm looking at Jesus? That's, that's just relax, right? All the promises of God are true if you believe in him. There's nothing to worry about here, right? So if you think I'm a believer, but I'm not committed enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not... Repent of your sins, pursue Jesus, look to Christ. This, this is the Christian life. It doesn't need to go beyond that. And if we start trying to get into every, like, what do I do here? What about this? Can I do this? Can I go there? Can I do that? That's what he's talking about. What is the point of that? What is the point of that? Look at these verses that... All the energy and effort we expend to control our lives and preserve our lives is next to worthless. There's, there's no secret formula out there that if we find it and get in good enough with God, we'll make everything go the way that we hope. The bargaining can stop, as Zach Eswine goes on to say in his excellent book on Ecclesiastes. We're just trying to make it work. Don't be overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise does not contradict the call to be holy or to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's simply saying that the whirlwind in our minds from constantly trying to figure everything out in order to hold everything together, right, as though that's what our obedience is about, controlling our world, making sure nothing bad happens to us. Will this glorify God or will that glorify God? Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I marry him? Should I marry her? Should I buy this or not? Should I go here or not? Should I have that or not? That's like chasing the wind. That's chasing the wind. Why should you destroy yourself? What an amazing... Why put wear and tear on your soul that God doesn't even require? Right? We create categories to determine what is Christian in categories the Bible never even addresses. Just, 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 we just create more laws, more, we require more knowledge. It's like the Christian life is this puzzle and you have to figure it out to get to the end and have everything be okay. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. That's one extreme then. That's one extreme. I will buck this trend. I, I will get past suffering. I will get past death by trying to be even more righteous. And again, believer, you're never going to make yourself more righteous throughout the years of your life and the process of your life than Jesus made you at the moment of your conversion. You will never become more righteous than you are when Jesus imputes all of his justifying righteousness to you the minute that by grace you have faith in him. So the Christian life is not a life of achievement. It's a life of reflection, right? Of reflection. That's one extreme. The other says, 
in light of these paradoxes, in light of the pain? Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. What you're saying is exactly. Since I don't know everything, and since I can't fix everything, since not everything can be perfect, then nothing matters. Nothing matters. Might as well just do what I want, right? Might as well just do what I want. Solomon is saying, stop the excuses to indulge your flesh. You wanted that anyway, whether there were paradoxes or not, right? We want to indulge our flesh regardless of whether the world is broken. So don't use that as the excuse to, well, I'm just going to do what I want. Again, you wanted that anyway, right? We want that anyway. We want to do whatever we want. We want to do whatever feels good to us. The problem is, is that not only brings constant harm to ourselves, it brings constant harm on others and the people that love us, right? Beloved, God is the one with the last word on our pain. God is the one with the last word on our joy. Listen to this, listen to this quote. Behind every pain, God is there, letting no one and nothing separate us from Him in Jesus. Behind every joy, God is there generously and graciously giving us something to rest happy about. So don't be overly wicked and a fool either. Don't let that be the response. Both are God-denying impulses. One rejects the need for the cross and the necessity of Christ and His righteousness. One denies the necessity of His blood and His forgiveness The one who fears God shall come out from both of them, he says. You mean the one who fears God will come out from the attempt to be overly righteous and the attempt to be overly wicked? Yes. Yes. The pursuit of righteousness and the indulgence in wickedness. The one who fears God will come out from both of them. So what do I take away? Then just fear God. Just do that. Just do that. Live with him as your point of reference. And you will be fine. There's no need to get worked up about what I have to do. The Holy Spirit lives in you, believer. He lives in you. Live in reverence of God and His Word and let Him be responsible for your salvation and your eternal life. Seek to please and obey Him. Absolutely. But don't think of it as the pathway around the sun or out of this world. And when you realize you're a sinner... And you can't seem to get it right. Don't abandon him and indulge your flesh. Or just to indulge your flesh. I can't be right. I can't get past this sin. So I'll just turn away from him and and do it whenever I want to. This is foolishness. That's a way to quicken your death. Right? Not escape it. By fearing God, by trusting him in faith to save us from our effort and from our failures, we are preserved, beloved. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life. When when you refuse to repent, to not acknowledge your iniquity, to cover up your sinfulness, right? Or 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 you meaning you refuse to repent because you think I'm too wicked, I've done this too many times, you know, God will does that ever lead to holiness? Does that ever lead to obedience? Does it ever lead to honoring God? No, it makes you feel so far from Him that you end up possibly abandoning Him altogether. Just so you can do what you want. What that is, is, is you're tired of fighting. That's what we get tired of. We get tired of the, the back and forth. Listen, God is not a man. When He's not gauging us like a person does. If I, if I, um, 
trying to think. I just thought in my head, like, what if once a day I went up and punched my dad, and then I thought my dad would knock me out clean if I punched him one time. But let's say every day I walk up to my dad, I punch him in the face, and I tell him I'm sorry. How many days do you think my dad would believe that I was sorry? Think I'd make it to the second day, third day, maybe, maybe? God is not like this. God is holy and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice, all that he is, has been fully satisfied by Christ on my behalf. That's the well God is drawing from when I come to him in repentance. It's not like he just has this book and he's, he's, you've done that 37,000 times this March 1st. I'm not forgiving it anymore. No. That would mean that the blood and righteousness of Jesus is only covering 37,000 sins. Do you see? So it's, 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 not, it's not that it's not dishonoring to God. It's not that we, want, we don't want to turn from our sin. Absolutely we do. But as we live, what, what would make him say things like this? We find out, I cannot be perfect. I can't do it. I, I can't. And, and part of the Bible's counsel is, yes, just fear God. Just fear God, right? The one who fears God is going to do really well sometimes and really badly sometimes. That's not determining whether or not you come out. Fearing God is what determines whether or not you come out. You see what the Bible is doing? It's almost like God is saying, look, if you fear me, your life will honor me. You'll, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. I've got you. I've got you. That's, that's, what, that's what we need to... Work into what we teach people, like in Sunday school and things, that yes, you are called to live holy. Yes, you are called to turn away from wickedness and pursue righteousness. Absolutely. No exception, no qualification. Just know this, you will often falter and you're going to start thinking when you do it enough that you can't come back and you can always come back. Why? Because the blood of Jesus goes further than our sin. And his righteousness is better than my lack of it. That's fearing God. Believing that. Reverence for that. By fearing God. By trusting him that is. In faith. To save us from our effort. And from our failures. We are preserved. Beloved. We're, we're meant to be then. As we read this. One of the things we're realizing in Ecclesiastes is. We're actually as God's people. Meant to be affected positively. By the way God has chosen to design the world. of The way God governs over our prosperities and our adversities. Remember. We're meant to respond to that positively. Not self-righteously. Not apathetically. To the degree that we will fear less. And then try more things. Right? That, that we'll live freely as Jesus intended. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and don't be burdened again by a yoke of bondage. Right? That, that's why we're often, we often try to figure out the difference between wisdom and uh, obligation. And what I mean is, you could live the Christian life constantly measuring, and, and, and yet, yes, there, that may, it may be wise to not go there. It may be wise to not watch that. And I don't want to downplay that and maybe wise not to do that or just absolutely. But when that becomes what it means to be a believer and how we gauge somebody's commitment to Jesus, now I think we're doing this. Right? I, I, I think the danger is that, yes, 
you've been called to do this, but how are you saved? Right? How are you made right with God? And I think if we turn from the gospel in this desire to figure everything out and live perfectly, right? I want to be as perfect as I can because Jesus told me I'm supposed to be perfect because you can't be. Jesus is threatening the world when he says that. You have to be perfect. What that is meant to do, what the law is meant to do when you read it, like, like I'm not under the law, but should I honor my father and mother? Absolutely. So that will crush me because I don't. Sometimes I do, but sometimes I don't. So what the law is doing is not necessarily teaching me how to live. What the law is mainly doing is proving to me that I can't live the way I'm required to. That doesn't make it so like it's worthless. Don't listen to it. It's look, you're not going to be made righteous by doing that. So don't add to it. Does that make sense? Don't go beyond even that, what you can't do anyway. Don't add more to what you can't do. Right? Don't. So at some point you just got to fear God and trust him. My life is in your hands. That, that would roll with Jesus saying those crazy things we talk about a lot on Wednesday nights. Don't worry about your life, what you'll wear, what you'll eat. Well, how? If, if, if my life has to be just this constant. And again, the response to that is, is, is not, you can't, again, don't go to the other extreme. We're like, well, forget it. Since I can't do anything right, I, I, I won't try to do anything right. I'll just do what I want to do. We don't need to be so paralyzed by having to make choices, beloved. Right? We don't need to be so paralyzed because whether we choose poorly or choose well, He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. And He's going to walk with us through everything, never forsaking us. Whether we choose well or choose poorly. That's not an invitation to choose poorly. We understand that. I'm simply saying what we have is not exhaustive. There are situations that we're going to bump up against that the Bible does not give us a specific answer for. And when the Bible does that, we need to respect that, not try to figure it out. God has not withheld from us anything that we need to be his children. Nothing. So when the Bible becomes silent, put it in his hands and take your step. Right? What college should I go to? Put it in his hands. Take your step. Right? Who should I marry? Are they a believer? Yep. Marry them. Right? I mean, as long as you love them. Don't... You know what I mean, right? Got all these Christian girls, these poor Christian girls thinking that because a guy's a Christian, they got to marry him, even though they think he's ugly. Wait for a good-looking one. Don't marry somebody you think is ugly. Don't do that. Anyway. Trying to live the perfect life means that we think we know what it is. And we haven't been given such exhaustive knowledge. We have a need to live with someone else as our reference point for what is wise. God, who has done what? Kept some things hidden. And subjected the world that we live in, even as people, to death and to futility and put us in it. So, therefore, ease up. We can't know it all. Verse 18 again. It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He's saying, grasp this. Hold on to it. Cling to it. Those who trust that God will keep his promises and that this is the truth that holds ultimate sway over our lives, that God will keep his promises, such people will not be polarized. They will not be polarized. We won't try to become more righteous than Jesus can make us. 
And we won't be fools who think indulging our flesh is what will make us happy either. Which, by the way, wouldn't that make powerful evangelists out of Christians? Not neurotic. Not constantly compromised. Just living in hope and faith and joy. The audacity of calm and peace in a world filled with paradox and despair. How did you get that? How are you like that? Oh, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. Again, when Peter starts talking about being able to make a defense or ready to make a defense for your hope. Again, believer, when was the last time you were assaulted for your hope? Right? For your hope. Why are you so hopeful when the world is like this? And we join right in with them as terrified and neurotic and panicked as they are about everything. And the Bible's saying, what do you, you don't have to be like that. You don't, you don't lose your faith. You don't get scared and out of control when things start to spin off the rails. I, 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 nothing. I'm, I'm in control of everything. What are we afraid of? And you, you can have hope in me that is absolutely noticeable as the world spins out of control because I've got you. I've got, I'm sovereign over all this, right? Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And he's talking about the wisdom of verse 18, right? When Solomon warns us not to be too wise, he's warning us that going beyond the wisdom, like I'm too wise for that, going beyond the wisdom God gives us in his word is foolishness. It's the height of foolishness. That kind of wisdom, the kind that results in reverence for God and his ways, Solomon is saying, is more useful to a person than ten rulers who are in a city. Those who ruled cities held life and death in their hands to some degree. A company of rulers and powerful people should be, ideally, if you had ten rulers in a city, a great benefit to a people. But no amount of rulers in our world, with our world's wisdom and our world's power, will ever benefit us in the way that hoping only in Christ will. This is the good to take hold of from which we should not withdraw our hands. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That is never untrue. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. This is a king talking. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So even having such wisdom cannot make us go to the extremes. We cannot take refuge even in the fact that we know the truth. We are meant only to take refuge in He who is the truth. So, don't let our quest to be righteous and wise make us get thin-skinned or naive. We are all too sinful to think we can see everyone else so clearly. We're not only surrounded by sinners and by wickedness and by foolishness. We sin. We are often wicked. We are often foolish. Why would, for example then, we get bothered... By people talking badly about us. This lets you know how much the Bible is aware of of how much stock we put in the opinions and approval of others. That's the example he comes up with here. For this whole paradigm. For example, he's saying, why would we get bothered by people talking badly about us? When, even in light of what we know about God and about the world and about truth, we still talk badly about people behind their backs. How practical is this counsel? It's precisely what he's talking about when he's talking about not trying to be too wise. Don't try to know too much. You don't want to know everything. Right? I, I don't want to know 
most of the time, how people talk about my sermon at lunch, I don't want to know. Right? I, I, what, what good would that do me? If, if I could just be around everybody in my church all week long, I could fly on the wall, hearing everything they say about me, about our church, about, like, like do I want to know those things? The Bible saying, no, you don't. Right? And, and I'm not trying to put it all, you wouldn't want to be around me 24-7. My wife doesn't want to be around me 24-7. That's tough, right? She's in the balcony, so she's really far away. I can say whatever I want. She, but you, you, you know what I mean, right? You know, I, I think we understand what the Bible is trying to say. We would, don't try to know too much. What, what would we do with that knowledge? What would we do with it? What would it do to us to know everything? We can't handle that. We, we weren't even created to have the knowledge of good and evil, beloved. Why do we think we need to know exhaustively what everybody's thinking, what's going on, what's happening, what could happen? Solomon's trying to, what is also corrupted does not have the ability to undo corruption. We, we, we can't unlock the doors here. No matter how much we know or how hard we try. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That, that, man, that's a, Wow. Right? That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Again, beloved, our hope is not in explaining everything. Our hope is not in finding an answer to all our questions and all our quandaries. That's part of the reason Solomon, of all people, was inspired by God to write, of all books, Ecclesiastes. The wisest man who ever lived, besides Jesus, wrote a book to tell us, I tried with the wisdom I was given to figure out the world and life under the sun, and I couldn't do it. Our hope is not in finding the whys and the hows. Our hope is in knowing that a good and loving God made us. It's the same God who subjected our world to a curse of death and futility in order to work out his grand design of salvation. He loves us. He will keep his word to us and will one day make everything whole. One day, as C.S. Lewis said, he will make everything sad come untrue. That's what I bank on. I trust his promise. I bank on that. That's what I need to know. Solomon thought that by testing it, everything by wisdom, remember, and trying to get to the bottom of it, he would figure it all out. He cracked the code. And he found out that even his wisdom was limited when it came to figuring out the paradoxes of life under the sun. So don't try to be too wise. Hope and peace will not come from that pursuit. Don't try to be overly wicked. Hope and peace don't come from apathy or indulgence. Instead, just trust that God is going to keep his word to you. Verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Hope, as we read, you heard that word three times, right? These are hard verses to understand, but we'll try. Okay, we'll try. I think Solomon is doing two things here that if we realize them will help us understand his point. First, I think that's why he goes to the third person. 
I think he is speaking mainly out of his own personal experiences in his own life. I think that's important. Secondly, I think he's using hyperbole here to prove his point. First of all, he tells us again in verse 25 how he searched deeply with his heart to genuinely understand the scheme of things, the way things work under the sun. And it brought him to a realization about his own life and, his, and that pursuit itself. When, when Solomon ponders what he's tried to do to figure out life under the sun, what about his life? Where does his heart go? Solomon knew the pain and emptiness of using sex and women to find fulfillment, joy, and meaning under the sun. The man had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That is absurd. And I'm not being insulting. I hope you know I don't. I'm saying that it's good to be the king. Right? 700 wives, 300 concubines. It's interesting. That's a thousand. It's interesting here. Just... But among them, apparently, he didn't find true love. He didn't find meaning. He didn't find happiness. He didn't find contentment. It didn't even anesthetize him to the world, to life under the sun. In 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4, we read about Solomon. His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. At some point... This heart of Solomon through which he came to ponder life under the sun had turned from the Lord to women. He's saying, what I pursued, that made my heart more bitter than the realization that one day I was going to die and not be able to take anything with me, which is the reason I set out on this pursuit in the first place. And what I found more bitter than the thing I thought made me most bitter was the fact that I couldn't find a woman that loved me and that I loved holy. I think, again, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes after this realization, after what I assume was his repentance, given the way he writes. I think after the realization of what he had done to turn from the Lord, he says, I added one thing to another. I just kept trying to figure it out, to find out the scheme of things. We read about that early on in Ecclesiastes, right? All the women, drink, achievements, wealth. Repeatedly, though, he had sought a faithful woman. But instead, what did he find among the women he went after? He found a woman, again, not women in general. This is not a smite against women in general. That's not what Solomon is doing here. He couldn't use this text to you know, uh, justify a, a, a negative view of women. That he's, It's not what he's doing. He found a woman. So... He's writing out of his experience with women. He's talking about that woman or those women, those kind of women. That woman whose heart was filled with snares and nets and whose hands were fetters. That's what Solomon found among women in his life. And so he's including himself with the sinners and the fools taken up by seductive women. Solomon knew women who wanted a man regardless of whether he was married or not. Those were the women Solomon knew before he met or after he had met the woman he wrote about in the Song of Solomon. But this was his experience. Sinful men, he says, are taken up with women who are like that. Right? We are. It's, it's, it's sad the way that men can be. Men will be taken by a woman they're not even attracted to if she shows interest in him, makes him feel good about himself, makes him feel you know, like he's a big deal. Men will be attracted to that in a woman. And there are women who are scheming 
and want a married man and want all, and that that's what his experience has been. Again, it's not all women. He's simply saying he couldn't find a single one that wasn't like that. Sinful men are taken up with women like that, and tragically, the vast majority of men are sinful like that. That's what he found out. It's not a slam on all women, and it is a slam on men who don't resist the woman he is talking about. But here's what's so bitter to him. He said, these are the things he said, if if you lined up a thousand men, 999 of them will be the sinner. They'll be taken by a woman like that. That's how men are. They'll be taken by the adulterous woman 99.99% of the time. The point of the final observation here, in light of how wise he was, do you see that? This is in light of wisdom. Speaking of not being overly wise, it didn't help Solomon, did it? In his experience of life, or his experience even with women, it didn't help him, all that wisdom he had. His final observation, the point of it is this, all people, all men and women, are on equal ground and laid low. God made us upright. Where is he going? He's going back to creation, to Eden. There we were good. In the way God made us, the place God made us, we were upright, but we sought out many schemes. Verses 16 and 17, more schemes. The reason that's so... or or His goal then is, is not to single out women or men... His conclusion is that both men and women have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He concludes this section by saying, look, we're just sinners. I found that about myself like this. Exhaustive wisdom and healthily enjoying the good things God has given, they're not within our grasp, the grasp of our flesh. The reason that's so heartbreaking as it's precisely what brought the curse of sin and death and futility and meaningless into our world in the first place, is that originally God made us upright. How we were made, how we were in the garden, we were fine. We had everything we needed. We would have been perfectly happy forever. No pain, no suffering. In the garden, we were as we were intended to be and all was well, but we were not content with what we had. We weren't content with the knowledge we had. We weren't content with the place we were in. Eve had to know more. She had to taste more. Adam had to protect himself and not take the responsibility of leadership. Both of them sought out their own schemes. And here we are talking about this. Science says that men are biologically designed to have as many partners as possible. So evolution makes monogamy impossible, right? Solomon's conclusion drawn from creation, not evolution, is the opposite. Seeking more and more partners was not the way it was meant to be. But how does this work into all this argument here? The lust that leads to adultery and sexual promiscuity and trying to find meaning in sex and attraction and all these things, it's just another one of our schemes, even of the very, very wise. That's what we do. It's what he's reflecting on here. We had everything we needed. And we sought out many schemes instead. 
Beloved, we have all we need right now in God's promise. Right now, tonight, right here, right now, we have everything we need, regardless of what's in the bank, regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of what the government is doing or the world is doing or America is doing. We have everything we need, but we just keep seeking out schemes, trying to figure it all out and get control and make our own way, find our own means of meaning and contentment and happiness and peace. And Solomon is warning his readers, and by the Holy Spirit is warning us in the midst of such a paradoxical world, don't go to the extremes. We must not attempt to be overly righteous or surrender to the temptation to be overly wicked. We must trust God to fulfill his promises. Beloved, we have what we need in Christ. We have the gift of his perfect righteousness imputed to us through the powerful working of faith in his resurrection. We have the full forgiveness of our sins through his blood. We've been freed from slavery to sin and slavery to death. We will be taken beyond the sun. So we've been freed from meaninglessness and futility by the promise of eternal life. We don't need to add to his righteousness. We don't need to spurn his blood and his forgiveness in our sin. Christ is all we need. God made us for eternal fellowship with him in his place and his time and his way. Every departure from that, from just you and him at his feet, is a scheme that has bent our backs and made us crooked when we were made upright. So when Jesus promises to redeem and restore us, when we read that in him we are new creation... The old has passed away and the new has come. When we read that, we're discovering that God is straightening our backs as well as our souls. So that we may abide forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth, upright and whole. We were not made for schemes. Which again, I think 16 and 17 are schemes. That's what led him here in this direction. We should not be in the position of feeling like we have to search and find out and discover all these things, etc., etc. We were made to trust His promises. Trust His Word. That's it. Just trust His Word. It's enough. From the very beginning, our primary struggle has been to simply believe God and take Him at His Word. When we were doing that, we were upright. We didn't even need the law in the garden. right? Yet we chose death. We need a Savior. But, beloved, we have one, and he is everything we need. Trust him. Trust him. 